So recently, I have written an article that has blown the numbers, stat-wise, off the roof in, in comparison to my articles before. I'm not talking about thousands upon thousands of views. I'm talking about in the, the minuscule v- reads that my posts have. This one has blown the charts off. So I've written a good bit over the past couple years. And there's not a lot of foot traffic on my page. I don't necessarily promote it. I don't network in a way to somehow build a brand. But... My highest view is how the local church is a blessing from God. And that one has 31 views. Well, just two days ago, I wrote, Israel matters to God. Attacking Israel is an attack on Yahweh. 184 reads. It has received some flack. I have posted it in some Facebook groups. And as you've known, based on the past couple episodes of this podcast, that I've been discussing covenant theology and dispensationalism. And I posted it in this Reformed page. And at the end of today's show or episode, I'm going to read some of the dialogue just to show you the lack of understanding when it comes to the other perspective we're arguing against. Okay, so I'm going to read, Israel matters to God. Attacking Israel is an attack on Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations, which have taken you as spoil. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Zechariah 2.8 It, says Eugene Merrill, apple of his eye, represents one of the most important and vulnerable parts of the body. To strike a blow at Zion is to strike one at Yahweh. Wounding him in a most sensitive area to carry out the full import of this bold anthropomorphism. Now, before we continue, anthropomorphism is ascribing something bodily to God, like an eye, which can be seeing, or hands, or the arm of the Lord, or the hand of God. 
God doesn't actually have hands or eyes. The psalmist often plea for God to turn his ear, to bend his ear to the their prayers. Just ascribing what we know to be true in our experience to God. And continue. The tragedy of what's occurring in Israel right now, Hamas attacking Israel, is different than hashtag pray for Ukraine. For those who believe, one, the church equals Israel. Two, Israel no longer plays any role in God's plan because the church has subsumed or taken in Israel. What's occurring right now in Israel is no different than any other country being attacked. But for those who follow the literal, and I should say the consistently literal interpretation of Scripture, Israel will be restored in the future and house the Davidic throne. Then what is happening in Israel is significant for four reasons. And it, the impending judgment for the terrorists attacking the people, God's judgment upon Israel for its lack of repentance. We see that throughout Scripture. Another instance of wars and rumors of wars, or Jesus in Matthew 24 says, and then, once again, putting on display the sinfulness and total depravity of the human heart. We need new, clean hearts that turn to Christ and embrace the pursuit of His will. Covenant theology has stripped any significance from the nation of Israel, therefore leaving a gaping hole in their theological system. The nation Israel, according to them, is only important as it pertains to the individual souls who need to hear the gospel, repent, and believe that gospel. Passages like Galatians 3, 15, and 29, where it talks about the different seeds of Abraham, will often be abused or taken out of context. Many don't understand the four senses of Abraham's seed which this podcast will not dive into that. I, re I recommend a book by John Reisinger, I believe is his name off the top of my head, where he talks about the four seeds of Israel, or of Abraham, sorry. And also Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, where it talks about one new man, and we also see there's therefore no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. And you can just simply question, okay, since there's no more Jew or Gentile, they don't exist. But Paul also says there's no longer male or female. So do male or female still exist? Which we would all wholeheartedly agree that there is a functional difference between male and female. So that passage does not close the case. There's a functional difference between Israel and the church, even though there is a spiritual unity where they all come to salvation through
through Christ. And those two portions of Scripture are used to remove any significance in the future for Israel and God's plan. For the covenant theologian, the tragedy in Israel is equal with war in any country. For the covenant theologian, covenant theology, being a system hyper-focused on individual salvation, has no place for what Michael Vlock calls the three main components of salvation. First, there is salvation of the individual. Second, salvation extends to the salvation and restoration of ethnicities, nations, and society. Third, salvation extends to the healing of all creation. While the covenantal system focuses almost entirely on the first point, salvation of the individual. Dispensationalism also emphasizes the salvation of nations, society, and the restoration of creation, which Vlock writes in his Dispensational Hermeneutics book. The first is the only, though the third component would be affirmed to an extent, important matter for the covenant theologian at hand. There was some pushback on that, claiming that, well, that's what post-millennialism pushes for, you know, the salvation of ethnicities, nations, and society. But many have failed to see the scriptures that were quoted in support for that. Isaiah chapter 2, in the 19, 16 to 25, Revelation 21, 24, and 22 to 2. So again, Isaiah chapter 2, and then Isaiah chapter 19, verses 16 to 25, as well as Revelation chapter 21, verse 24, as well as chapter 22, verse 2. And if you look at those passages of Scripture, you will see that this person contending for postmillennialism is not doing so in accordance with these verses. I digress on that point, but the most important thing of this issue is not what Michael Vlock says or any other theologian, but what does Scripture say? Now, this could be broken off into many, many episodes in a series. But I just want to look at two crucial biblical passages regarding the current state of Israel. If you do happen to have your Bible, we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. It reads as follows. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So you could ask, who are they? When Paul says they are enemies, but they are beloved, who is they? If you turn back to chap two verses before that, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You could say, whoa, 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 Mark. Remember, Paul also, also said not all Israel is true Israel. That's not a defeat of the point that I'm making. Paul is simply saying, out of the larger Israel, there's an is, uh, Israel within. There's a true Israel who have come to the Messiah. But in Romans chapter 11, it talks about how there's a partial hardening. A partial hardening. And this partial hardening is for the purpose of the gospel proclamation to Gentiles. And as Gentiles are brought in, it will cause Israel to be jealous. And in this Israel is what we see, the Israel of God in Galatians, I believe. And it is not a reference to the church. I repeat, the Israel of God does not refer to the church. But that's besides the point. So all Israel will be saved. And I believe there's 10 references to Israel in Romans chapters 9 to 11. Could be wrong, but I know there's 10 references Paul makes to Israel. And it's all about the nation. So if you were to understand what Paul is meaning when he says all Israel will be saved, then you must look at how else does he use the term Israel. And each time it's referring to a national ethnic Israel. The second passage is Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. If you're familiar with this text, it is often used as a proof text for the new covenant, and rightly so. It talks about it. But if you read verses 35 to 37, it shows that this new covenant is going to be made with Israel, and it extends to Gentiles. Let's read. This will be in the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. It says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day, and the statues for the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes are removed before, from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. Do you notice the verse that mentions these statutes, we can ask, what statutes? Well, the sun given by Yahweh for light by day, and the moon and stars given for light by night. If the sun, moon, and stars are removed, which they can't, then Yahweh will be done with the seed of Israel as a, and then my article in bold, as a nation. 
Secondly, if the heavens can be measured, they can't. And the foundations of the earth below searched out, again, they can't. Then, again, in bold, God will reject all the seed of Israel. The sun, moon, and stars, the immeasurable depths and the unsearchable the immeasurable heavens and the unsearchable depths are all created and upheld by the Lord and are all continuing proof that God is faithful to Israel. So the point, in writing this short article, I hope to show that Israel is important to God because of her future role in the plan of God, which I will get to in a minute. We must not reduce the terrorist attacks on the nation as equivalent to that of, say, Ukraine by Russia. The main point here isn't to discuss whether there are two peoples of God or one people of God, but to draw attention to the distinction between Israel and the church. In summary, Israel is still precious in God's eye and will play a big role in the coming days, specifically in the millennial kingdom. And let's mention a few words about that paragraph. Matthew Bryce Irvin in his book, 1,000 Years with Jesus, gives us a glimpse of what awaits us as we endure these last days. Irvin says, God has made promises in his unconditional covenants, many of which will be fulfilled in the millennium. Israel will finally receive, Israel will finally realize her destiny as the, as the head of the nations in the midst of a world moving towards Eden. Resurrected saints, including some of the most remarkable from Scripture, will hold high offices with responsibilities to match as they reign under King Jesus. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world on the same summit where the Messiah's home, a massive temple with miracles flowing forth, will also sit. The infamous Bishop J.C. Ryle in his Coming Events and Present Duties books concurs or agrees when he says, I believe that the Jews, after going through tribulation, will ultimately be gathered again as a separate nation, restored to their own land, and converted to the faith of Christ. And he references five or six verses that prove his point. It should be obvious that Israel is still important in God's plan. Alva McLean draws one massive conclusion from Matthew 20, 15, 24, which reads, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And which leads to McLean saying, The only adequate explanation is to see what our Lord understood clearly the contingent nature of his message of the kingdom. To put the matter in a word, the immediate and complete establishment of his kingdom depended on the attitude of the nation of Israel to whom pertained the divine promises and covenants. Dwight Pentecost quotes H.A. Ironside saying, If Israel were turned to the Lord, it will hasten the time when Lord Jesus will come back again and bring with him refreshing for all the world. This is still true. The final blessing of the poor world is wrapped up in Israel's repentance. 
When the people of Israel repent and turn to God, they will become the means of blessing to the whole world. And that's from his lectures on the book of Acts. Before you walk away from this, it seems most beneficial to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. The long-awaited Messiah shown in Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, Mary. He is the Word of God, John 1, who has existed eternally, never made or brought about by anyone or anything. He lived a perfect life in a human body, fully God and fully man. He took upon himself the sins of his people and absorbed the wrath due to us by dying a substitutionary death. Having died, he was buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb and rose again three days later, appearing to the disciples along with 500 others. He now stands in victory at the right hand of the Father. We are called to repent of our sins while turning to Christ and resting on his work alone as our righteousness. And in bold, for those who are ethnically Jewish, Rest in Christ, not in your heritage. That's the end of that article. And I, ha I have seen in the Facebook world the, just the lack of understanding. People not grasping what exactly I'm arguing for. There's no room in their system for Israel because in covenant theology there is there are three theological covenants while most agree on three all all agree on two covenant of redemption of works and of grace and these covenants flatten flatten history biblical history into the mere salvation of individuals. So when it comes to Israel and the future significance, then there's no room for it. And there were two verses. There were a few verses that were brought to my attention on the Facebook comments. I appreciate them. Even though it, the comment was built on a a false assumption that I was just posting because I didn't want to have an inter interaction. I just wanted to shove this down someone's throat. And the verses were Matthew 21. I'll, I'll focus on these. On Galatians, Galatians 3. About the true Israel are the children of faith, he says. And then the church is the royal priesthood. The kingdom was given to when it was taken from Israel. Which that's Matthew 21 and 1 Peter 2. Then there has been some political jargon thrown on me which I've mentioned nothing political. Just Bible and this 
brother, I'd call him a brother. He was not hateful. He was blunt, but he was not hateful. I told him that he confuses the four senses of Abraham's seed. Where... Sorry. Where Abraham has a natural seed, a spiritual seed. So in Galatians chapter 3, when they see spiritual seed, it then since their covenantal framework flattens everything down to salvation, then they can't quite understand that Abraham has a natural seed. And where we read earlier from Jeremiah, that this natural seed will not be cast off. I was pleading with him to be consistent with his position when it comes to the significance of Israel. I then turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's nothing in that verse supporting the position that Israel has been removed from God's plan. But rather, according to W.E. Glennie, many of the arguments used to suggest the church is a new Israel replacing the nation are based on parallels and correspondences between the two. The obvious error is the belief that such a correspondence or parallel proves identity. Just because we use controversial passages to establish a doctrine. So in First Peter chapter two, verses nine to ten, Peter references to the church, royal priesthood terms, terms that were applied to Jews in the Old Testament. And the argument argument is made that it's now been ripped away and is now the church. Because the church are given these titles, therefore they are Israel. And you have to insert that into the text. If you notice in many solid evangelical worlds, it's really big on we're going to do exegesis. Not eisegesis, meaning we're going to go to the text, no presuppositions, and we're going to pull from the text. But instead, what's been done with this text is eisegesis. Something has been put in the text and pulled out that was not in the text. We then move to Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. And I'm going to read it because... Of course, I don't want to have a discussion on that passage if we're not going to read it ahead of time. Talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Let's get some context real quick. I want to keep reading. Let's just start at 43 again. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, 
it will crush him. Notice this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was talking about them. So Jesus had finished up his parable, and did they take from it that Jesus was talking about the whole nation of Israel? No. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So I would like to quote a well-respected Messianic Jew named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Who was represented by the you from whom the kingdom is taken? Who is the nation to whom it is given? In the context, the addresses are clearly the chief priests and Pharisees, i.e. the Jewish leadership, not the people as a whole. Matthew 19.28 proves the point. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And contextually, since we're on this topic, verse 46, as I've already mentioned, shows that the chief priests and the Pharisees knew he was talking about them not the entire nation. Fruchtenbaum says again, the point is that the kingdom, while taken from the present Jewish generation, will be given to a future generation of Israel. The brother on Facebook pointed to Romans chapter 11. If you haven't spent time in Romans 11, I'm not going to read all of it, but I encourage you to go do so. But for now, rather than reading all of Romans chapter 11, I would like to point you towards a sort of lengthy quote from Michael Flock again from his book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? It is difficult to see how this passage supports replacement theology. While both the natural and wild branches have a relationship to the same olive tree, the branches are still distinguished. It is not as though the wild branches became natural branches. So even within the illustration, believing Jews and Gentiles are distinguished. Again, we see the twin concepts of unity and diversity in operation at the same time. Jews and Gentiles are unified in their participation in the Abrahamic covenant, but diverse in that Jews and Gentiles do not become the same entity. Vlock quotes a man named A.A. A. Das, where he says, Certainly Gentiles enjoy Israel's privileges as members of God's people. Gentiles benefit from being grafted onto the olive tree of Israel's gracious heritage. Both believing Israel and the Gentiles are together branches on the same tree. But instead of Israel losing its identity to the church, a third identity, uh, sorry, a third entity, the Gentiles must recognize their dependence 
upon historic ethnic Israel's heritage. Although Gentiles are benefiting from that heritage, they remain wild branches benefiting as Gentiles. I share that brother's post or his comments because what he said was helpful. What he said was edifying. And lastly, what he said made me go look at the text. And that's why I appreciate these discussions. Because it's making me go back to the text. I want to know what the text says. I don't want to develop a system and put it on the text. And this brother is one of the rare guys, even though I think what he said was clearly out of sorts and clearly not an accurate interpretation of Scripture. He still pointed me there and made me wrestle with it. Are we... Why are we not allowed to wrestle with texts? Why are we so defensive when every single theological perspective has texts that are bothersome? It's kind of like an example like Paul's thorn in the flesh. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying that it's just something that keeps poking at us and we we have to deal with it. And so, having discussions like these, we'll see differing perspectives, and we as brothers and sisters in Christ can point each other to Scripture to come from it. And I want to end on a little how not to have a theological discussion 101 on the same post and the same group. As I had just mentioned, and as I just finished reading a comment, I would like to show how not to interact with beliefs that you're not familiar with. I'm not going to reveal his name, of course, because although his responses are ridiculous, I still respect the guy. But I want to read his responses and just make some observations. He says, Are the admins in this group really just going to continue letting the dispensational cultists pick fights over covenant theology? Every day in every post, they comment to confuse people that are new to reformed faith and they post this ridiculous nonsense. They think the Bible was written to them, and nobody figured out how to interpret the Bible until 100 years ago. It's absurd. Somebody needs to step up and do some moderating. Was this person's comment... a proper response to my article that I fully read at the beginning of this episode? No. You can sense the emotion behind it. I don't know anything about this guy or where he came comes from. or I don't know anything. But his comment 
is how not to interact with somebody that disagrees with us. He calls me a dispensational, dispensational cultist who's just picking fights. I've yet to pick a fight. I've pointed to scripture. And I have wanted to be pointed to scripture that I need to wrestle with. And then I get accused of every day and every post, they, so I'm getting lumped into this overarching group. They comment to confuse people and posting ridiculous nonsense. Did he address any ridiculous nonsense? Nope. He attacked my character, and that's called an ad hominem. And I, here's my response. I said, oof, your comment wasn't helpful to the discussion. I'm a dispensational cultist, question mark. Can you interact with my post rather than building your arguments off ad hominem? So I said to him, can you interact with what I've said rather than just attack my character? That's not a, That's not a proper way to discuss stuff. And then I go on to quote him, to quote him back to himself, saying, they think the Bible was written to themselves, and no one figured out how to interpret the Bible until 100 years ago. I would, then I said, can you clarify what you mean? When people throw grand, vast, sweeping statements, it's all right to ask them what they mean. And I said to him, quoting himself, it's absurd. Someone needs to step up and do some moderating, which then I called him out, saying the problem here is that covenant theology is one big echo chamber who believes in the need to always be reforming, but have been left behind since they wholeheartedly subscribed to 17th century confessions and creeds. And I asked one more question. Again, can you interact my, with my scriptural case and, avo and avoid emotional-filled ad hominems? So I'm, I'm wanting him to show me where I am wrong from scripture. And here's the craziest thing. Let me find just the most absurd response. Okay, found it. He says, wasn't helpful, question mark. You all joined, you all joined a reformed group to pick fights every day. Reformed equals covenant theology. This might be a lot of theological jargon, big words that I necessarily haven't given definitions to. But this guy is holding hostage a term, and nobody else can have it unless you meet his conditions. Here's the craziest comment to me that shows no grace of God. You may not care about this, but I'm just pointing out the errors in this person. I wish I could say brother, but based on how he interacted with me, I'm just going to call him person. It's absurd. You are you are anarchist communist that cause chaos 
to try and force people to argue about their theological views. Where I'm from, we call them bullies and scumbags. Um, I don't really know what he means by I'm an anarchist communist. Uh, I don't really have anything to say back other than that's completely unrelated. And it, it's, it's him projecting, I don't even know what onto me. And then he says, I'm trying to cause chaos when I've just wanted to have a theological discussion. And then he calls me a bully and a scumbag. So I hope you, as we come to a close, I hope that you notice the two differing ways to interact with people who we disagree with theologically. One, though, was wrong, and I, I feel like he's wrong, and I, I responded thor thoroughly to everything he said. He pointed to Scripture, and we had a scriptural discussion. The other guy attacked my character and did not address anything I had said. And as in closing, I hope that this has benefited you. I hope you have seen my scriptural, though not exhaustively, I'm not in a part in my theological adventure, as I call the series, to be able to exhaustively argue every nuance of my position. Though fellow brothers and sisters in Christ do and can and do challenge me, and that's a refining process that needs to be met with humility and with open Bibles, and I want to leave by encouraging you to do the same thing. That it's, it's all right to enter a theological, just a bad metaphor, a theological battle running with your sword out. As my one friend said, it's all right. I've grown immensely by having open-ended conversations and I've I've been built up by guys who don't act like this the last guy I mentioned but instead actually interact interactions are fine since when did it become bad to push each other on what they believe so I, I appreciate if you've made it this far I greatly appreciate you listening and the hearing what I have to say. And if you want to read the article rather than hearing it, maybe, you, maybe you've gotten lost whenever I started talking about the Facebook comments and what to do and what not to do. You can, you can find me on Facebook at Mark Teeter or my blog is mwteeter.wordpress.com. And I would greatly appreciate to have any type of conversation regarding anything I've mentioned today. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and shine his face upon you.